0: This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988
1: Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, we have two cards this week. All right. Card number five and card number 473. Card number five, 1987 record breakers. And card number 473 is Joe Necro. Joe Necro, a pitcher for the
0: Minnesota Twins, and the record breaker is Joe with his brother Phil. Phil pictured in the Cleveland baseball team a uniform.
1: Why did we pick the Necro family this week? Matt, on Boxing Day 2020, Phil Necro passed away at the age of 81, and I thought it was interesting that Phil is in the 1988 top set, sort of, because of a record broken in 1987, but he was no longer in the league in 1988. But his brother Joe was in the league in 1988, so he has his own card. So unlike a normal two-card episode where we have maybe a a player and their all-star card, this one we have a player and his brother, who is now (laughs) retired. And Joe also sadly passed away in 2006. So this is not only a Phil Necro tribute show, but also a Joe Necro tribute show.
0: So RIP to both of those greats. And we should say up front, the the two of them played in the major leagues for a combined 46 years. So in our humble little 1988 Tops podcast were unlike, unlikely to even scratch the surface of their careers. We'll talk a little bit about Joe and his career since he was still playing in 1988. Add some notes about Phil as their careers crossed paths uh, a few times. I uh, will also pay tribute to Phil and talk more about this record that he broke, which was combining for 46 years in the major leagues, 539 wins between the two of them as brothers. But David, we're definitely going to need to go dig deep into David Letterman since both brothers appeared on the show. And we encourage uh, listeners, if there are favorite stories about the Negro brothers that that we've missed, we encourage you to reach out to us on Twitter at tops1988 so that we can follow up in future episodes. But, so let's start with the background of the of the Negro family which starts with with the father Philip who they said probably the best pitcher of any of them, right?
1: Yes, that is the case. Philip Necro, and the name was changed at Ellis Island from an A to an O, so Nicra to Necro, according to Phil Jr. Phil Sr. was a first-generation Polish-American. Both of his parents died when he was five years old. The community that he grew up in in, in Eastern Ohio took care of him, and made sure that he made it through some semblance of school and wasn't living on the street. He went to work in a coal mine when he was 15 years old. And he had played in the Mine Workers League, and he was a pitcher. Mm. And according to his sons, he was the best pitcher of the three of them. And if they had radar guns, he would have been able to throw a 100, according to... To folks at the time, you know, maybe this is a tall tale, but, but Joe Necro said, Phil and I can't bring it a hundred combined, <laughs> but he learned how to throw a knuckleball from another mine worker, but he didn't throw a knuckleball when he was a pitcher. Cause he was a power pitcher, but he taught his sons to throw it. And Phil and Joe both played at Bridgeport high school in Ohio, along with John Havlicek. So Hondo Havlicek also played for the baseball team at Bridgeport high school Phil Necro said that Havlicek could do a lot of things, but he couldn't catch a knuckleball.
0: (laughs) A little better at basketball.
1: Yes, both were uh, outstanding athletes in high school. Phil, early on, leaned on the knuckleball and went pro very early. So in the late 50s, I think in 1959, he signed his first pro contract at the age of 20 joe was a little bit younger so he was born in 1944 and he was more of a traditional pitcher and not a knuckleball pitcher when he was younger he ended up at college at west liberty university other famous alumni from that university include brad paisley (laughs) all right music artist and cook county treasurer maria pappas
0: oh fantastic
1: both of equal stature
0: Excellent. Well, now that we're getting into Joe's career, let's let's go back to his card. And again, this is card four seventy three. So Joe is in Joe's warming up in a practice session. The stands are empty. He's got a really good Twins uniform on. This is a dark navy jersey with Twins in giant red uh, or giant red font across. Uh, the chest and the gray pinstripe pants looks good. Joe's got gray hair. I mean, his hair is about as gray as mine in this picture, which makes sense. Cause he is about the same age as, as I am right now on this picture. In fact, older by a bit. <laughs> so a good picture on the front, going to the back of 473, Joe 6'1", 195
1: right-handed pitcher. Joe was drafted in 66 and made his major league debut in 1967. He went through, I think, three levels of minor league baseball in 1966, went 6-6 and with a 2.08 ERA, but was good enough to earn his right onto the big league team as a 22-year-old. The back of this Joe Necro card is one of these that I remember looking at and just being overwhelmed as a kid, that this... Card is so full of stats and the writing is so little. Those first seven seasons, <laughs> there's not much to talk about in those first seven seasons for Joe. He played for the Cubs, Padres, Tigers, and Braves. He went 58 and 63 with a 3.93 ERA. Uh, and you can see not a lot of strikeouts. He was more of a finesse pitcher. And by the time he gets to the Braves, his brother Phil was also on the Braves during those two seasons, '73 and '74. And by that point, Phil was a star pitcher. He had already led the National League in ERA in 1967. He had a no-hitter in 1973, and in '74 he ended up leading the National League in wins. He was also 35. So in <laughs> 1974, Phil Mikro is 35 years old, and he had. 13 more seasons left to go. Oh, <laughs> Joe also had a lot of seasons left, left in him. He was 30 and we've got 14 more seasons of Joe to talk about. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, this, I, I think that that's one of the most amazing things about these guys. Phil didn't really even get his start in Major League Baseball until he was 25 and didn't become a regular starter until he was 28. But as we talked about with Charlie Huff, knuckleballers are built different and the pitch doesn't take as much arm strength and, and doesn't cause as much traumatic injury to the arm as a fastball and other breaking pitches. At this point, Joe was a, a traditional pitcher still throwing fastballs, sliders, but working with his brother, Phil in Atlanta. He picked up the knuckleball, and that gave him a, a new lease on life as a starting pitcher. Joe could fall back on his fastball and slider if the knuckleball wasn't working. And we can see in 1975, Joe Necro was bought by the Astros for $35,000, so approximately $175,000 in today's money. The Astros were a relatively young team. They were getting a 30-year-old journeyman starter who was going into his fifth team.
0: The Astros got a lot more than they, than they expected. Even just in the first couple of years, Joe joins the squad, and his ERA is around three. And it sticks below four for 11 seasons in a row.
1: Yeah, for every season that he's with the, with the Astros
0: extremely effective
1: they also got something
0: else they didn't expect which is a power
1: hitter on may 29th 1976 joe did something that he only did one time in 973 at bats he was facing the braves and facing his brother and phil said i threw him a knuckleball and he didn't swing so he yelled at him you can't hit it if you don't swing and on the next pitch Joe golfed a knuckleball into the stands for a home run. <laughs> and that was the only home run of his career. <laughs> Phil said he didn't send him a Christmas card that year. <laughs> and that was the only home run of his career. Phil said that that later when he would face the Astros, Joe would stand in the dugout with with a couple bats like he was going to be the pinch hitter just to, you know, just to mess with his brother.
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah, the, the... You can tell from these videos, these guys are just hilarious. They're just funny. I don't know. It just seems like these knuckleball pitchers, you have to have a lot of humility when you're you're throwing a pitch like 60 miles an hour and striking guys out with it. You kind of understand how ridiculous it is.
1: If you're throwing a pitch that David Letterman can catch, you've yeah. <laughs> got to have some sense of humor about yourself, and uh, the Astros gave Joe Necro the time to figure out his knuckleball and it paid off for them four years into his stint there he became an all-star in 1979 he ends up leading the national league in wins with 21 so david i see that
0: he is it's italicized in two categories with a diamond so this is a very special indicator that not only is he the league leader but that he's tied with someone for top for 21 wins and five shutouts who is he tied with Matt, he's tied with Phil. Yes!
1: This is the only time that brothers have shared the league lead in wins in the history of baseball. So they both had 21 wins in 1979. Phil also led the National League in losses that season. (laughs) (laughs) He led the league in losses four years in a row. Uh, But, you know, Phil, we could joke about it. He was a Hall of Famer. If you're going to throw in 40-plus games and they're going to leave you in for a complete game and half of them, you're probably going to get some losses, take some tough L's. You know, not really a reflection of his quality. He just was throwing a ton of innings. Joe also had a significant number of losses, 11 losses that year. But the Astros were a pretty good team. They finished second in the National League West, and Joe finished second in the Cy Young voting to Bruce Souter. And Matt, this also gives us an opportunity I think we talked about this on the Charlie Kerfeld episode to talk about how beautiful these Astros uniforms were in oh, the mid '70s, early '80s. Just picture, gorgeous. <laughs> I was gonna call him Young Joe Necro, but I think at this point in 1979, <laughs> he's 35 years old. <laughs> Not that young anymore.
0: It's it, it looks like a pajama top with the uh, that orange, yellow, and red starburst. Stripe Astros top.
1: It was designed by an ad agency. They said it was based on a Texas sunset, but it's more famously called the tequila sunrise Jersey. (laughs) And I appreciate the off centered Astros. It starts kind of, it doesn't, they could have centered the word Astros on this Jersey, but instead they started at like a third of the way in. So everything is just kind of shifted. And then you also have this off-centered star. I guess that looks better than the star right on the belly. We don't want to have any star-bellied sneetches here.
0: Definitely not.
1: Plus an orange hat. I love this jersey.
0: That orange hat doesn't match any no. of the colors on the rest of the uniform. It's really strange. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this look. It's uh, a bold it's, strategy. It's a lot of look, is what I would say. You've got the, the collar... The stripe on the pants, they don't match. You've got, there's a lot going on. I think that Tim Gunn would tell them to dial this back before sending it on the runway.
1: So bold fashion choices and a bold team in Houston going into 1980. Another good Astro season. This team had Nolan Ryan. They had Joe Necro, Ken Forsh, J.R. Richard, who was their ace, unfortunately suffered a stroke midway through the 1980 season. And he was carrying a 10-4 and four record and never made it back to the majors. But with the loss of their top starter, the Astros somehow still recovered and went into the last series of the season up three games on the Dodgers. They lost those three games in a row to fall into a tie for first with the Dodgers after 162 games, which brings us to something we talked about in the Greg Walker episode, the 163rd game. And Joe Necro got the start in that 163rd game against those same Dodgers, and his mm. teammates said he was not going to let us lose. And this was the most important game in Astros history. Joe pitched a complete game, six-hitter. He got the 7-1 to win, and the Astros go to the postseason for the first time in their history. Uh, so I think that they should have re- rewritten the Go, Go, Astros song as Go, Joe Necro. Joe, Joe, Astros. So
0: 1980, they make the playoffs for the first time. Joe ends up with a pretty good line for his season, 20-12, and 12, 3.55 ERA. And going into
1: the playoffs, what, what ends up happening? The playoffs against the Phillies, they were tied 1-1. And Joe comes in to start game three. And true to form as a knuckleballer, he throws 10 shutout innings. And the Astros scored in the 11th. But Joe had been pulled in the 10th, so his gem kept them in the game, but he didn't get the win. Mm. Unfortunately, the Astros lost in five games in that playoff series to the Phillies, who would go on to win the World Series.
0: 1981, the, the strike shortens the season. Joe was 9-9 nine and nine with a 2.82 ERA. So here we go, two years in a row making the playoffs. Joe pitches game two against the Dodgers, eight shutout innings.
1: And once again, the Astros don't score until the 11th inning. So <laughs> Joe had 18 collective innings of playoff baseball and a 0.00 ERA, but a 0-0 zero and zero record to show for it. Mm. And unfortunately, again, the Astros lose that series to the Dodgers in five games. His 18 innings to start his playoff career of scoreless baseball was second only to Christy Mathewson in the history of baseball. So that's pretty good company to be in. Nineteen eighty two, the Astros don't make the playoffs. They're not in contention at all.
0: Joe goes seventeen and twelve. This is maybe his best season statistics wise, two point four seven ERA, five shutouts, sixteen complete games.
1: Really dominant two hundred and seventy innings. You know meanwhile at this time, I think his brother Phil was throwing in the 330 inning range, (laughs) which is almost double what a starting pitcher throws these days.
0: In 83 and 84, he's now 39 and 40 years old, and he's still solid, still doing 250 innings per year. And he ends up as the all-time leader in wins for the Astros with those 11 seasons
1: that he's there. So nobody has passed him in the year since with some of the great pitchers who have gone through Houston. Joe ended up with 144 wins, 116 losses, and a 3.22 ERA for those Astros teams, some of which were not good teams. So he was really a solid player for the Astros for 11 seasons.
0: Well, that takes us to 1985, where his career crosses with his brother Phil yet again. So he's traded to the Yankees in 1985 and joins up with Phil.
1: Yes. Well, just in time to join his 46-year-old brother... where Phil gets his 300th victory. In 1985, the Yankees were in second place going into the last week of the season to the Blue Jays. Phil had three chances to get his 300th victory and lost each time. And so unfortunately, this is maybe a little bit of a bittersweet moment for Phil, it came the day after the Blue Jays won the AL East over the Yankees. Phil is on the mound He gets a shutout, a complete game, and he didn't throw a knuckleball until the last inning. So 46-year-old pitcher who has 299 knuckleball wins waits until the final at-bat to throw a knuckleball. One of the first players to meet him on the mound after that win was his brother, Joe. So a really great family moment. Phil said, this can set an example for some people who don't have the ability to throw the fastball or curveball. If you do have a pitch that you can get over the plate, you can win. And I think that kind of uh, mentality is what sets knuckleball pitchers apart. And Phil is the only knuckleball pitcher to win 300 games.
0: Just amazing. Phil leaves the Yankees after 1985. In 1986, Joe is less effective. We're, we're getting near the end of their careers here this takes us to 1987 and to the year that's on our card here where Joe gets traded mid-season to the twins and a team that has a shot at winning the World Series. We know the 1987 twins win the World Series. This is good timing for Joe.
1: Yes. Unfortunately, he was not terribly effective for the twins. He was four and nine with a 6.26 ERA. And maybe that struggle led to this incident That maybe is what Joe is best known for. And in August of 1987, (laughs) this is one of the best videos. One of the best baseball videos.
0: It really is. So you may want to stop the podcast, pause it and watch this YouTube before we go any further. It is the ejection, the ejection of Joe Necro. Although we'll maybe come up with some, there's gotta be some other subtitle.
1: I don't know. The ejection of Joe Necro sounds like a a classical painting. Yeah, like the defenestration of Prague. There were multiple defenestrations of Prague. Ah, true. You know, that just means getting thrown out of a window. So one was in 1419. Okay. The second was in 1483 and the third, there were three. The term defenestration of Prague more commonly refers to the third, which was in 1618.
0: 1618. eighteen oh, I'm, I've completely lost the plot.
1: Is it the Hundred Years'
0: War then? Or the Thirty Years' War? One of them started a war.
1: Thirty Years' War.
0: I knew it was a war. What was the main they cause were just of the Thirty always, years war?
1: Why were they just throwing people out of windows? And why was this only happening in Prague?
0: The ejection of Joe Necro. What I love most about this this clip, David, is that it's unclear why the umpire to begin with wants to check Joe Necro's pockets or why he he comes to the mound and you kind of read him saying so what's going on here Joe or so what's in your pockets Joe so what are you doing to the ball Joe but I can't really make out what it is that he's looking for or seeing on the ball
1: I don't know if it was somebody in the Angels dugout suggesting that there was something on the ball. But you can tell when the umpire, who is uh, Tim Cheetah, which is a great name, good old baseball name, <laughs> Tim Cheetah. He asks Joe to to throw in the ball so he can look at it. And it, it's hard to tell if Joe deliberately throws the ball away from him. to maybe say like, oh, well, the, the ball got scuffed because it bounced on the ground. I don't know if that's the case, but you can see that Cheetah goes and has to pick the ball up and then starts looking at it. And then before giving it back to Necro, he puts it in his bag. At which point then the catcher, Tom Kelly, other umpires from the infield come in to look and see what's going on. And so maybe at this point, because he saw there were scuff marks on the ball that were not from the field were not normal scuff marks, he said, you know, what do you got in your pocket? This is also around this time, Mike Scott of the Astros was regularly accused of doctoring the baseball. Joe Necro had been on the same team as Mike Scott. I don't know if those two things are connected, if kind of information gets shared among teams that maybe this guy's messing around. But we do see that Joe fishes around in his pockets like like a kid who got caught and then pulls his pockets out like a hobo <laughs> and throws his hands in the air and something goes flying as he does so.
0: Yeah, I mean, from one pocket comes the square of sandpaper and then out of the back right pocket comes the emery board. It's kind of, it's one of those like, oh yeah, see my hands are totally empty. And like hoping, throwing the Emery board back behind the back of someone else.
1: Hoping so that, that the see- catcher might put his foot over it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hey,
1: hey, hey step on this
0: so they can't see it. The umpire of course sees it. The umpire picks it up. They've got sandpaper and the Emery board and they, just, you know, you're, you're ejected. And it's It's really comical. So I do love the quote from the opposing manager from the Angels who says, nobody ever suspected Joe Necro of scuffing the ball.
1: Everybody just always knew it. Joe's explanation for this, short nails are a key to throwing a good knuckleball. So there's maybe some truth to Joe needing to use this nail file, except he said that he needed to use an emery board between innings. Do you really think his (laughs) nails were growing?
0: (laughs) Oh, in between innings. Yeah,
1: that's... (laughs) Sometimes he said he sweats a lot and the emery board gets wet, so he has the sandpaper for backup. (laughs) Sounds a little suspicious to me. Scuffs and cuts on the ball could impact the flight of a knuckleball, making it more unpredictable and harder to hit but we'll take Joe at his word he got a 10-game suspension because Major League Baseball also did not believe him
0: (laughs) so judgment was brought down on him by Major League Baseball David but the toughest cross-examination he faced as part of this was on the David Letterman show where during this suspension, he ends up going on the show, on the program, to talk to Letterman about the issue. And we'll play a clip from the show here in a second, but to set this up, Joe Negro comes out onto the stage with a a sander and sandpaper, emery board, file, and other implements all clipped to his belt. He's wearing a (laughs) wearing a a work belt.
1: Nobody showed me a scuff baseball that whole night. Mm -hmm. And when I got thrown out is when the emery board came out of my back pocket. That's when I got thrown out. Yeah. So you're telling me that you did not doctor the ball that night. Do I look like a doctor? (laughs) (laughs) But if you you were going to do it, you could have done it with the sandpaper. Joe
0: never (laughs) directly admits, even after some pretty aggressive, hostile questioning by David Letterman, He never admits to altering the ball himself.
1: And he kind of dances around it and says, you know, every pitcher has thrown a ball that has marks on it. And he's right. He played in the Astrodome. And in some of the AstroTurf stadiums, there were metal ties that would hold the AstroTurf down. And if a ball hit that, it's going to scuff it. It's going to cause marks. Of course, people have thrown balls that have been in the dirt but he also very quickly shows Letterman how to how one might scuff a ball using, I think, some sandpaper on his foot. <laughs> he seems to have a very good sense of humor about this. It's interesting that people took this as a joke, and we treat it as a joke, and maybe compare that to the conversation around deflate gate in the NFL, and particularly with the Hall of Fame voting coming up and performance enhancing drugs coming up in that context this is a guy who is caught cheating on the field for a team that won the world series and he goes on david letterman and jokes about it maybe because it's a starting pitcher he's a knuckleballer he's kind of a goof <laughs> that people didn't weren't up in arms about this in a way that maybe now on the internet folks might be i think it's a good point
0: the cheating scandal with the Astros was incredible, just incredible amounts of video surveillance, stealing signs, calling out pitches ahead of time, and you know, with the Patriots and also video surveillance, stealing signs and other kind of technology. Here you have it where it's like, well, it's sandpaper on the ball, and did he actually scuff in? like, did he?
1: And we're sitting here laughing about it now, so we're even treating it differently. Let's wrap up the
0: 1987 season in that World Series Twins team.
1: Joe Necro holds the record for the longest period of time between a Major League debut and a first appearance in the World Series. This was Joe's 21st season in the Major Leagues, and he extended his postseason scoreless run. He threw two shutout innings in a loss in Game 4. And while this was not his finest year in the majors and maybe had one of the lowest points in his career getting caught cheating he won a world series championship at 42 between the two brothers 46 seasons of major league baseball and only one ring and joe got it in 1987 did he go out on top of course not he came back for 1988 (laughs) which is why he gets a card in the set
0: he could have retired
1: after 1987 Instead, he threw in five games, he went one and one with a 10.03 ERA, and he was released by the Twins in 1988.
0: In his post-playing career, two notable things. One is that he raised his son, Lance, who also became a major leaguer, so yet another Negro to end up in the major leagues. And he
1: raised him right. Lance was a knuckleball pitcher in high school, but he turned away from the knuckleball, turned away from the family craft and became a first baseman. But after his major league first base career was over, he tried to come back in the Braves minor league system as a knuckleball pitcher. It only lasted one year, but I appreciate Lance attempting to revive his career in the way that his dad and uncle did. And also in 1994, Joe joined Phil on the staff of the Colorado Silver Bullets, which was an all-female baseball team sponsored by Coors. Phil was the manager of that team, and Joe was a pitching coach. That team only lasted a few seasons, and Coors pulled funding in 1997, but a very interesting Point in baseball history with this all-female team for the first time since the Rockford Peaches.
0: Joe passed away in 2006, as we had mentioned before.
1: And he was living in Florida at the time, and I think that this death came as a shock to his friends and family. Uh, in some of the remembrances, his teammates just remembered him as a fun and funny guy and a great friend and kind of always the life of the party, as we could see from that Letterman clip. He clearly had a great sense of humor. And uh, the former Astros president, Tal Smith, said, if you didn't like him, you didn't like people. After his death, his daughter Natalie created the Joe Necro Foundation in his honor, which supports those affected by aneurysms and uh, strokes and helps boost awareness and treatment for those. Joe is in the Astros Hall of Fame and, as we said, remains the Astros' all-time wins leader with 144.
0: So, David, now looking at the second card... The record breakers card is where we formally bring Phil into the story, although he's appeared a couple of times. This is Joe and Phil together in nineteen eighty seven setting the record for most wins by brothers in major league baseball. And although Phil isn't in the set with his own set of stats, had an incredible career with some huge highlights that we wanted to make sure we got to today.
1: Yes. And as you look at the front of this record breakers card, these I think this is our first record breaker card. There's seven of these in the set and it's kind of boring they're red <laughs> Just you know, two filled. guys on a red background <laughs> looks like phil just finished throwing a knuckleball and joe's yep. maybe getting ready to field
0: yes and then flipping to the back winning is a Negro family tradition Necro's surpass Perry's to set win record for brothers. Cleveland, Ohio, June 1st, 1987. Phil Necro earned win for Indians tonight, the 530th for the Necro family. This breaks brother record of 529 set by the Perry's, Gaylord Perry and Jim Perry, between 1959 and 1983. So 314 wins for Phil, 216 at the time for
1: Joe Necro,
0: setting a major league record.
1: Yes, and that record was set at 530 with a win by Phil, but they both extended the record a little bit further after this card. After this rec- after the record was set, Phil got four more wins and Joe got five more wins. So the current record is 539 combined, 318 for Phil and 221 for Joe. Interestingly, in their nine games against one another, Joe won five and Phil won four. So, Joe got the edge there. Phil made it into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Joe did not. But it's kind of interesting if you look at the stats from 1975 to 1985. In that 10 year period, Joe was 146 and 117 with a 3.23 ERA. That's half of a Hall of Fame career. I think if Joe had picked up the knuckleball earlier in his career, he would have had some Hall of Fame stats he didn't really get started until he was 30, you know, with a little, a few more years, he would have had some hall of fame stats.
0: So Phil, who did end, did end up in the, in the hall of fame, he lived until age 81, as we mentioned, passed away this past year, December 26th of 2020, running down his accomplishments, 24 seasons in the majors 21 of them for the Braves, both the Milwaukee Braves and Atlanta Braves. Five-time All-Star. Five gold gloves as a pitcher as well. And in the Hall of Fame, so many top stats and incredible accomplishments. You know, no hitter. You know, 121 wins that he won after
1: turning age 40, which is incredible.
0: Just insane. And he, and wasn't, just
1: ra- he wasn't just racking up wins he, you know, he he was an effective pitcher. He was an all-star in 1984 at age 45 and a deserving one. Similar to his brother, he had only won 31 games before he turned 30. Just amazing longevity. He actually had the highest number of pitching wins above replacement after age 35 of anybody in Major League history. And so still very effective. 3,000-plus strikeouts. He led the league in strikeouts one year. That's not... That doesn't seem normal for a guy who's throwing a knuckleball. And it's really amazing to watch some of these batters just totally baffled by by his knuckler. And he threw 5,404 innings. That's the most of any pitcher who started his career in the live ball era. So just just around forever.
0: Let's go ahead and play the clip. This is David Letterman seeing up close and personal what a knuckleball looks like.
1: Okay, now when I throw a knuckleball, I won't do a lot because I won't throw it very hard, but you, you may uh, see the difference in the spin of that ball and the spin of this ball.
0: Okay, now this is the, this yeah. is the knuckler.
1: Oh yeah, it's not moving at all.
0: That's well, amazing. the ball
1: doesn't rotate. <laughs> it's not, there's nothing on that thing. Phil brought two different mitts for Letterman to catch with. One was a traditional catcher's mitt, and the second was a knuckleball catcher's mitt, which is significantly larger. There's a second appearance on Letterman, which has Phil, along with other Hall of Famers, reading off the top 10 list. And it's the top 10 benefits of being a Hall of Famer. It's both great because Phil has some good comedic timing, and you can see if a guy can read a joke well. Uh, Ozzie Smith is maybe the best on there at reading a joke. But it's also quite sad to see how many of those folks have passed in the 15-plus years since that aired. And in fact, Phil was the seventh Hall of Famer to pass away in 2020.
0: As we close the book on the Necro family, as we said at the beginning, there's there's too much in here for one show, but how would you sum up what this family has brought to baseball?
1: 539 combined wins. (laughs) And as we talked about the number of those that came after the age of 30, these are guys from another time in baseball. I don't think that there is an active major league pitcher throwing a knuckleball, but as Phil said, they kind of prove that if you can get a pitch over the plate, you can be successful. There's so many complete games, so many shutouts, innings pitched. I think combined, they threw almost 9,000 innings. Matt, there's a few quotes about Phil Necro's pitching and the quality of his knuckleball. Ralph Kiner, Hall of Famer, said, Watching Phil Necro pitch is like watching Mario Andretti park a car. And I don't <laughs> know if that is uh, is meant as uh, as derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, lo- I love it because
0: what it says to me is it's someone with this incredible skill that you're expecting to go really fast or you're expecting to have this huge high performance. And instead, it's this really strange, this kind of strange environment. You're just then not expecting. I like the quote by Bobby Mercer that trying to hit against Phil Necro is like trying to eat Jello with chopsticks. Sometimes you get a piece, but most of the time you get hungry.
1: Yeah, Phil Necro, Joe Necro, both great knuckleballers, both great sources of stories sad that both of them have passed and we've lost many of our baseball greats over the last few years and um sad to see them both go
0: absolutely so rest in peace to the necro brothers and thank you david for the story thank you to you at home for listening if you lack rotation and are wildly unpredictable, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter. We are TOPS1988. You can also find us on our Facebook page. Just search for 1988 TOPS Podcast. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.